This is episode 24, A Beginner's Mind. Here comes Dupont. Uh, not yet. He hasn't found it. Can't find that one. Oh, there's Dupont. Okay. Hey, play some piano, Nat. says in the beginner's mind there are many possibilities but in the experts there are few today's episode is about finding new life and new creativity by picking up something new you know it's been a minute since we've done the NAM show and I kind of miss it I met this next guest at a panel at NAM in 2020, right before the lockdown happened. And we ended up becoming friends, and I helped her start her podcast, which now has over 35,000 downloads as of this airing. We recorded this episode last year, and the podcast has grown a lot since then. We talk about how she picked up the guitar, how she started her Learn to Play Guitar in a Day workshop, what it was like to start a podcast, and how she got her material on PBS. We also talk about how music affects your brain, teaching, perfectionism, getting struck by lightning, and the importance of fun in your creative work and play. I'm Stephen Levitt, and this is the Language of Creativity Podcast. Marlene Hutchinson, you're a guitar teacher, you're creative, you're a mom, and you've been on NPR, you've also been on PBS, and you have a special that you did where you learned to play guitar in a day. Yeah. So I guess, you know, we can just jump right in. We met at NAM. actually. We met at a podcasting panel and you sat right next to me. Yeah. And you're like, what's he talking about? And I was like, oh, I'll <laughs> tell you later. And then I handed you my card. <laughs> you know what I remember about it? And I think about it so often. I, uh, previous to meeting you in that seminar, it, that was uh, January 2020. In uh, 2019, at the end of 2019, I thought, I really want to do a podcast, but I have no idea how to do that. And so I saw, you know, on the NAM schedule that they had podcasting classes. And I thought, perfect, I'm going to go to those workshops and clinics. And I know nothing. So whatever I can absorb will be great. And I remember sitting in that workshop and you're sitting next to me and the guy is talking about all this tech stuff, which now if I were to sit in on it, I'd probably have a little better understanding. But he's talking and he's using all this terminology. And I can still remember turning to you going, um, 
do you know what he's talking about? I mean, it sounds Greek to me. (laughs) And you were so nice about it. You were just so great. You're like, yeah, I'll explain it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was kismet, I think. I definitely felt like, so you, at that time, were just wanting to start a podcast and you're like, I have all these blogs that I've written over the years and I teach guitar and I'd love to start a podcast. And I think I'm just going to do like this really short format, like five, five to seven minutes of just me revisiting the material from my blogs and doing lessons on a podcast. And I'm like, that's actually a really good idea. So you started (laughs) tips for guitar playing success. Yes. Tell me what that was like. I mean, you go in, you're like, I want to record a podcast. You know, what was kind of your next step? Well, meeting you, like you said, was kismet. I mean, that was definitely, you know, God or your higher being or whatever, totally watching out for me. Uh, Because again, I knew absolutely nothing. And so you were so kind to patiently walk me through step by step by step. I mean, from everything in the very beginning, like how you choose the name of your podcast and how that works out in the realm of the internet and within certain podcast services, there's these certain requirements and just everything. I never even had an idea of what you needed to do. So, but for me, it really started with getting sort of my ideas honed into place of how I wanted to launch it with what material. I mean, I had, like you said, I had plenty of material. I've been writing these Thursday tips every Thursday for more than, I think it's been eight or 10 years. And so I had a lot of material to work with. So, you know, I really had to think about how do I pare that down to begin with? And so, you know, my perception was this is for someone who is new to playing guitar or might already play guitar or kind of on the newer side or intermediate side, but just giving them some ideas and tips that generally guitarists go through, like fingertip soreness, you know, so how yes. to how to help people sort of relieve and alleviate that fingertip soreness. I mean, whether you're um an expert guitarist, or you've just started, that's something you're going to experience. So I really try to make my tips and from the beginning, something that everyone could benefit from. You know, I like to tell people I know three and a half chords on a guitar. <laughs> and what are your three and a half chords? <laughs> uh, I think it's E minor, G, and D is like the half chord, right? Because that's like a pie and you don't play all yeah. the strings. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. And then I think I know C. So okay. maybe it's four and a half chords now. Okay. Okay. But that's that's over like 20 years of, you know, having learned a little bit once. And then just I, I plink around with, I play guitar wrong because I'm a keyboard player and a producer. So, you know, I wish I played guitar. It would be so much easier to um, fill in tracks on my own and not have to bring in a guitarist all the time. But I work with a lot of guitarists and uh, they people like the tones I get out of guitar. So I have an affinity for guitar. I just it's different instrument, you know, it's, it's not, it's not chromatic all the way up. There's there's these jumps that you can do from string to string that make your hand positions easier. And it's all about, you know, one thing I know for sure is that the best guitarists, the tone is in their fingers. Yeah. It's not as much about the guitar. It's about how do you hold the strings and that can make the difference in the sound of the chord, you know, the intonation of the instrument. It's amazing. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think little nuances, like if you're on the tips of your fingers versus the flat of your finger, um, if you're pressing hard, if you're not pressing hard, the gauge of your strings, you know, some people play better with thinner gauge strings and some play better with thicker gauge strings. And, you know, I like to say whatever phase you're in or whatever your guitar goals are, I mean, if you want to play three chords, you could be a three chord expert in the world. There are so many great, fun songs you can play with just three chords. So, you know, I mean, if you're trying to make yourself into like Eric Clapton, that's a little bit harder to attain. And obviously you have to work on it. But, you know, with your three or four chords that, you know, you could still have some fun. So it's all, I believe, perspective. But I think just every person learns differently. Everybody has a perspective of what they want to do with it. Some people have started really young, stopped, picked it back up again. Some people have never played and start as an adult. Some people have played since they've been young and are ripping on the guitar. So I think everybody is different in their journey, and I think that's what makes it so interesting. Yeah, and you don't have to be an expert guitar player. That's not a prerequisite for having fun playing music. You can have different goals for your guitar playing. I learned something the other day. We were tracking a song for a songwriter, and he wrote a Johnny Cash-style song. And what I found out was that Johnny Cash tuned his guitar up to F, so he oh. tuned all the strings up a half step and that just made everything fit in his home register better. And he didn't know very many. I'm guessing he didn't know very many chords if that's what he's doing. No. So, but then the open strings <laughs> changed. And so you could do the same thing by putting a capo on the first fret. Sure. But we were tripping out about that because we would have never guessed in a million years he tunes his guitar to F instead of E. And as far as I know, I don't think he had any serious formal training. So I think a lot of it was instinct, you know, and his instinct yeah. was the strings need to be tuned this way because it fits me and my style better. You know, I find that too. There's songs I'll play that I love, like, for instance, a song by the Beatles. And, you know, they wrote it for their voices. And when I'm going to play it, it doesn't feel quite right when I'm singing it. And so, yeah, I play around with the capo and I move it to different frets and then it fits my voice better. So there are those options. But yeah, as far as goals in your guitar playing, that's just so personal and it's so fun to hear and watch people on those journeys. I had one student and now has become a very good friend that I jam with and he just really embraced finger picking style. But when he first started, and it's a funny story that he likes to share too, I like my students to sing along with their music for a lot of reasons. It goes well with guitar, but it helps you keep the cadence of what you're playing if you're singing. Yeah. Especially when you're first learning. And he looked at me and he said, I don't want to sing. I just want to play guitar. What do you mean I have to sing? And I said, well, that's kind of the way I roll. So, you know, just work <laughs> with me on this. And he did. And, and he's the first person now and even soon after when I had him start singing, he will tell you he absolutely loves singing when he's playing guitar. Wow. So and he, he didn't think he would. And he that's didn't cool. think he would. No, he thought he was just really only going to play guitar. Yeah. And it's cool to try new things. My favorite thing to do right now is to pick up an instrument that I don't know. And because I have all this experience 
with music theory and piano and producing, when I pick up something new, I come at it with a beginner's mind. Yeah. And I can take that depth that I have with music, but I can just apply the most simplest things and I can just play around with intervals and tone spacing and different rhythms and how does the instrument feel in a certain register and it's just the fun returns it just becomes like new again and I love that about being a beginner it's so fun I love that statement to the beginner's mind that is so true I actually find that guitarists who teach themselves who like never had formal training come up with the best riffs because they don't know that you're not supposed to play it that way. Like, they'll just try stuff and it just sounds cool. They don't know what chord they're playing. They're just like, what am I playing? And it's my job to kind of figure out where it wants to go from there. Sure. You know, but they it's just like, there's no limits on what they can come up with. And I think that's amazing. Right. And I think that is super, super important to impart to people that there are no limits. What you want to do is what you want to do. If you hear a sound and you like it, play it. There's no, uh, I suppose, unless you are classically trained and needing to play certain ways. But even in that realm, I think some of the most beautiful creative sounds come from just noodling around or just playing around or some people, they hear a tone in their head and they match it on their guitar and then they embellish from there. And but it's not necessarily, you know, you have to follow the rules or else. I have mm -hmm. a lot of people, too, that will come to my guitar workshops that'll walk in the door. And my workshop is learn to play guitar in a day. So it's for people who've never played before. And they walk into the room and they look like a deer in headlights and like, I have no music <laughs> training and I, I know nothing about guitar. And I look at them and I say, great, I got you covered because I assume you know absolutely nothing. And to a point you brought up a little while ago with your background in piano and other instruments. You know, when I play something new, like I learned guitar and because I already played piano, there was definitely some similarities enough, at least in the music theory portion, where I believe it helped me to catch on quicker. So thanks mom and dad for definitely. piano lessons when I was seven years <laughs> old. <laughs> but I later then, a few years after I learned to play guitar, I decided to play ukulele, which is not a big stretch. It's not a far stretch from playing guitar, but enough. I mean, but all the, the root strings... strings are different. Yeah, exactly. it's a different order of notes. Exactly. And so if you're at the time I was playing, I was chord driven in my my playing. And so I had the chords memorized and then, you know, the D chord for an ukulele is not the same fingering as the G. And so <laughs> no. I had to look at it with that beginner's mind. And it is a thrill. It's very exciting to look at something new and try it out. That's one of my favorite things, too, about the workshops that I do. I see people yeah. that they're like a kid in a candy store when they realize, you know, it's really not that hard to play guitar. Now, what I'm teaching in the day is, you know, a few chords, some simple songs. So, you know, you're not Eric Clapton, but I had one woman in the workshop about an hour into it when we I had shown them how to transition from chord to chord to very simple chords. They were working on it on their own. And she 
all of a sudden, I, I kind of was walking by her and she looked up at me with this, like, you could see the Alleluia chorus and the, the light bulb <laughs> going on. And, and she just said, I get it. This makes sense. I can do this. And it's like, wow. yeah, you can. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, in your oftentimes helping people check something off their bucket list or find a missing part of themselves that they lost when they went into a corporate job, right? Yes. Yes. Well, I think one of the, I think the benefits of, of that one day program is I had a lot of people that wanted to learn to play guitar and they were really feeling sort of a time crunch. Like I had people come to me and say, you know, I'd love to try it or I'd love to learn to play guitar, but I just don't have time for weekly lessons and Mm -hmm. things like that. And even just trying it out. And I, that's kind of the beginnings of the idea for my workshop was, well, wait, maybe you could do something that's like a one day program where you could really introduce successfully introduce people to the easy way of learning to play guitar. You don't have to have experience to do my program. You don't have to be able to read a note on a sheet of music. I just guide you through in very simple ways to start strumming and making it sound good. (laughs) Because that's fun. Here's a clip from Tips for Guitar Playing Success podcast. I'm going to play the choruses of each of these songs to give you a jump start, and I'll give some tips on rhythm pattern options. If you want to follow along, the links for the songs, which include the verses, choruses, and chords, are in the show notes, or you can find them on my Thursday Tips blog, which you can find on my website in the Learn category of the navigation bar. Feliz Navidad is so much fun to play. I like to strum it with a calypso pattern, and I like to add in a riscato strum, which is a flamenco technique, where one of the down strums, you use the top of your fingernails like this. It's kind of like you're flicking water off your fingers. So here's the chorus for the song Feliz Navidad with the Riscato strum. Feliz Navidad Feliz Navidad Feliz Navidad Prospero año y felicidad Feliz Navidad Feliz Navidad Feliz Navidad, prospero año y felicidad. By the way, when I play the English part of the song, I want to wish you a Merry Christmas. I don't use the riscato. I just play it with a standard calypso strum. Also, this song can be played with a basic strum. The element of fun is something I've been trying to bring back into my work because, you know, it's a long climb when you're trying to get into something and you have to work hard at it and you have, you know, something that's a passion becomes a job and it can be draining. And so lately I've been trying to remind myself, my work is music. If I'm not having fun, I'm doing something wrong. 
<laughs> so that's been my mantra lately is just, okay, like, let's make this fun. Let's enjoy this. And it's, it's funny, you can do the exact same motions, the exact same process, the exact same things. But if you come out with a different mindset or a different feeling, you can just completely change the thing. But do it exactly the same thing, but just come at it a different way and everything can change. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that if you're not enjoying what you're doing, then reassess. Maybe it's just because you haven't had enough sleep, you know, right? right? Or maybe you're being too hard on yourself. You wish you were Eric Clapton already and you're impatient, right? Oh, I know. I tell people, you know, Eric Clapton, though it seems this way, was not born with a guitar in his hands, you know, (laughs) right? He had to start somewhere. He had to start with that first strum or that first note or that first chord. And then he developed it from there. And whether you have training, whether you learn on your own, you have to start somewhere. And that's what I try to remind people about. If your perception and your thought process is, I'm going to go to a one-day workshop and I'm going to play just like Eric Clapton you name it, Jimi Hendrix, you know, it's like, well, okay, those, those are great goals and certainly attainable in your future for sure, without a doubt, if that's what you want to do. But keeping it realistic, knowing that it's a building process. I mean, I explain in my workshop, you know, just work with me here. I'm not starting with calculus. I'm starting with one plus one. Because in in school, we don't start with calculus. We start with one plus one, and then it builds from there, and it keeps building, right? And that's what I try to impart is you aren't starting out doing everything. You're starting out building up to whatever you want to do. Yeah. I tell you what, I was a terrible piano student. Like, (laughs) I I finally broke down and asked my, my mom would say, well, you like playing the piano. Do you want lessons? No. No, because I didn't want to practice. I hated practicing and, or this idea of practicing. I think it was that idea of how practicing was supposed to go in my head. And so finally, I heard some song in my head that was playing and I, I woke up with it and I couldn't get rid of it. And so I sat down on the piano, tried to play it, couldn't play it, and then just broke down and said, okay, mom, <laughs> I want <laughs> piano lessons. I'm ready now. <laughs> so the first two or three teachers I had, it like didn't work for me. Like, they wanted to do all the fundamentals and break it down to, and I'm an ear player. So they say, okay, now read the music ahead. And I just completely get lost. I mean, I don't think I have dyslexia, but it's like I have musical dyslexia. When I look at sheet music, everything just jumbles together and turns upside down. So it was really intimidating. And also the music that they were trying to do, it, was, it wasn't, wasn't the music I was hearing. It was also this classical approach, nothing wrong with classical, but I I feel like now after 30 years of playing, now I'm ready to learn classical. And so it was this rote method of teaching and, oh, did you practice? Did you do your this, that, and the other thing? And like, then I got a teacher at a local music store. I show up the first day and he said, okay, what do you want to know? What do you want to play? And I had never thought of it. I almost couldn't answer the question. I was like, wow, uh, uh, rock. And I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I said, what I hear on the radio, that's what I want to play. And he's like, okay. He's like, so I'm going to teach you the blues because it's the foundation of all rock and roll. And I'm going to teach you theory because you can play anything. And I was like, okay, what's theory? And he's like, oh, it's just, it's the language that you're going to use to talk on the piano. And I was like, oh, okay. And then each week he'd teach me things 
and maybe I'd play a little bit. He'd, I'd watch him play and every week. So did you practice this? No. Okay. Well, let me teach you something else. <laughs> every week, did you practice it? Well, I tried, but uh, I didn't really. And because for some reason in my head, like sitting down and forcing myself to, to play for 30 minutes and do the same thing over and over again, I had this mindset but I wish I could have corrected my bad attitude about practice because, gosh, if I had just practiced like three and a half minutes a day for the last 30 years, I'd be incredible. It's a journey that you go on. I know myself, it's funny when you start talking about practicing when you were younger. My piano lessons, I started when I was seven, but only took them for two years because I could not stand practicing. <laughs> and my mom and dad, my sister too, was feeling the same way I was. And after two years, my parents are like, well, then we're not going to pay for piano lessons because, <laughs> you know, you're not learning anything. But the interesting thing when guitar came into my life in my adult years, everything I learned was in there. You know, I remembered so much of what Mrs. Tucker told me. <laughs> but then in my school years, I learned to play clarinet. And so I oh. played it and I was in the band. And there again, I had to practice. Now I was a little more motivated, but I still wasn't like, oh, I love practicing. I just... I don't know, but I did practice a little more than I did with the piano. And I played that for several years. And certainly both of those, along with, I used to sing in choirs and things, helped me in my sort of musical world, if you will. Singing helps. Oh, singing is, it's another instrument. It really is. My mom says I've been singing since I could make any kind of noise. I have always loved to sing. And in fact, I'll digress on this yeah. one. But she tells this story where we were driving in the car and this is pre seat belts. And I was only about two or three years old. And I stood behind her left ear and sang whatever was on my mind. I would just be singing and she's driving us to the grocery store or whatever. And, <laughs> and so she said, I used to always sing into her ear. So yeah, but what was interesting with my guitar journey, because I didn't start that as an adult. In fact, it was a New Year's resolution one year. I thought, I just really want to play guitar. And so luckily I followed through on that one. I got a starter guitar and found a group lesson at like the local adult school. And, you know, I actually, it was the best time for me to do it. And I liked practicing. In fact, I couldn't practice enough. I played all the time. There was like this phenomenon that happened with me that from that very first strum, I don't know, it was like I, I had found my cocoon, my home, my it was unbelievable how I felt about it. And the music that she chose was like singer, songwriter kind of stuff. And that's the stuff I really enjoyed. But I was motivated because I wanted to be able to play those songs with that instrument. And yeah, it just, I think, you know, to the point that you made that that teacher that said, what do you want to do? You know, for me, it made a big difference that First of all, I wanted to learn more about the guitar from that first strum. I could tell I wanted to know how to play different chords, how to strum, how to pick, how to flat pick, how to 
I just hook, line and sinker. I just wanted to learn it all. But I think what really resonated with me, and I try to do this with my students is, you know, what do you want to play? Like even my yeah. private students, or if I'm in the workshops, you know, and we'll be working on some chords and I'll be like, well, what kind of music do you like? And they'll say Beatles or I don't know, John Denver or Sheryl Crow, you know, whatever it is. It's like, okay, great. Well, that artist tends to play these kind of chords. And so you might want to focus on these chords, right? you know, like really, because my theory is, and you probably experienced this, if you love what you're playing, you will play it more and you'll want to play it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that was the thing. Like, I couldn't understand classical as a 13 year old. Mm, that was okay. not where my head was at. I wasn't exposed to it. I didn't appreciate it. I didn't want to play it. It didn't make any sense to me. I mean, it's a great way to build dexterity and virtuosity, sure. but it didn't appeal to me. And I couldn't understand it until I was, you know, 28. <laughs> so right? that would have been the time to pick that up, you know, but. And you still can. <laughs> I, well, I probably should. Sometimes, I think sometimes parents have this idea where they want their child to become, you know, oh, well, if I'm going to put them in violin, I want them to have a chance to play in the fill and become a professional musician. Sure. And, you know, you see that with baseball, you see it with soccer, you see it with Olympics, you see it with all these things. Like parents have ambitions for their children. And I think that was what was different about my parents is they just wanted me to do whatever made me happy. And so I think coming from that space is really important. My teacher, Michael Lord, he's an accomplished player in his own right, plays piano B3, makes records, does composing and things like that. And some other artists that I've worked with actually came up with him as well, which is funny. But the thing that I realized was at the end of seven years of lessons with him, I think I barely practiced between any of them. But I <laughs> sat down after finishing and I sat down at the piano and I started playing. And I realized I have learned so much in the last seven years. It was incredible. Like everything started to click. Right. And I was thinking, you know, wow, all that looking back, I didn't, wow, I didn't really practice, blah, blah. It's like, and I realized as I was playing, I learned a ton. Right. And I got what I wanted out of this. And that's the impact of it. And looking back, you know, when I look at the people who have children and they want to put their children in lessons, looking back, like I stuck with piano. I still play piano. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people I know who say, oh, I quit it. I wish I would have kept going, but I didn't like it. It was too hard, you know, whatever. That was like not fun for them. And, you know, oftentimes like what matters is what makes you stick with it. What makes it useful Absolutely. to you, right? Absolutely. Well, you know, with piano, it was funny in my teenage years, I really was drawn back to it. And I didn't take lessons at that point, but I had enough information that I had learned in those couple of years where I took lessons where I could read the music. And so I would buy sheet music. Like one of the songs I really wanted to play on the piano was Stairway to Heaven. And so we got the sheet music and mind you, when you put it all out, it's just really long, but I worked and I worked and I worked and I got it. Not to mention that first arpeggio is pretty, you have to kind of like jump your hand over to that high note, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's, a, but luckily I'm tall, so I tend to have long, or not tend, I do have long fingers. And so that 
didn't seem like a huge impossibility. And I was just determined, you know, I think that has a lot to do with when you're learning something. If if you like it or you're just passionate about a certain part, like I was really with piano, I was really passionate about certain songs when I was in my teenage years. And so, um, yeah. you know, songs like You Light Up My Life were really popular and um, Stairway to Heaven and some John Denver songs. But you know, because I loved all those songs, I also thought they would be great on guitar too. And so for me, a lot of it is, is being driven by, or my motivation for playing is driven by what music I want to make. And, you know, because I've been playing songs and teaching and everything now, I hear sounds differently and I'm starting to think about sounds differently and creating things of my own. Like I was playing something and I accidentally played it differently than I was supposed to. I'm like, wait, wait a minute. Wait, wait, what was that? That's kind of cool. It's really (laughs) different. You know, I was down one string each instead of up and it's not a, like a standard chord. It was just a different sound. And I'm like, oh, wow, I really like that. And I found it accidentally, you know? So I think, yeah, happy accidents are a thing. Oh, I think that's how a lot of music is written. Especially while we're recording. I think you're right. Those happy accidents. Sometimes you just have to roll with them. Like something comes up and everybody in the room just stops and goes, wait, <laughs> what was that? <laughs> <laughs> right. It's Well, and that's even fun, too, if you, whether you're recording or not, but just playing music with other people. And whether it's the same instrument, like I have a group of friends I get together with and we play guitar and everybody plays guitar and we just play and it's so much fun. But, you know, I've also sat in like with my church band or I've performed with other people. And, you know, there's just something really amazing about playing or making music with other people. There's, you know, there's like, you got to feel the vibe of other people, literally, you know, yes. like, like I'm jamming with my friends and what we do is a person will name a song and then we all played that song. So whoever named the song is kind of the lead on it. So you mm-hmm. kind of have to roll with their tempo and their, and, you know, I may want to play that song faster or slower or with different chords, but because that person's leading it, you know, we have to acquiesce, if you will, to what that person's doing. And so it means I have to really be mindful of yeah. what they're doing. And you kind of have to feel what people are doing. It, it's really a conversation without any words. It is so much. And I think that's what's so powerful about music. I, I finally realized why I picked up the piano. And it was because on the piano, I could express things that I couldn't put into words. And I also think that's why people listen to music as well. Absolutely. You know, I've done a lot of personal research. I'm not a scientist, but personal research into the science that looks into the effects of music on the brain. And we are vibrational human beings. We have a heartbeat. We have a breath cycle. So that's why when you talk about, do you get my vibe? You know, it's like there is a vibration, right? There's vibration in our voices and instruments, of course, have that vibration, but really being in tune with that. But what happens with music, like, for example, if you listen to or play 
relaxing music. It actually slows your heart rate down. They've hooked people up to machines and they've watched as their heart rate levels drop. And so that's why, you know, if you're say in a spa somewhere, they're not going to be playing Metallica, right? They're going to be playing something (laughs) really relaxing. Someone might want to go to that spa, but that's true. I will say it's not me. (laughs) But on the other hand, they also did studies. The Pantera spa. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I think it's more like the workout gym. I mean honestly that well, that's no, funny you that's, say that's, that because the, the other gym. study they did was workout music. So on the on the other hand, workout music is best if you want to really get your heart rate going. It's best if it's got a very fast tempo and a very strong right. bass drum sound to it because it amps you up. And the studies have shown, again, they've had people hooked up to machines while they're exercising with loud music or not loud music, but intense music versus same exercise with softer music. Heart rate just goes through the roof. And so that's why people who are exercising at the gym love to hear those higher tempoed songs. Ironically, I found out that if you want to learn CPR, that staying alive Yes. Has the perfect <laughs> tempo for chest compressions. I'm not kidding. This is a real thing. Like, like everyone could picture the tempo for staying alive. Right. And it's actually the perfect tempo to do CPR like, too. Uh, 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 <laughs> staying alive. Did you ever see that Friends episode where they did that? No, really? Yeah. Not Friends. I'm sorry. Not Friends. The Office. So, on the oh. office and they had to do CPR training and she's telling them, she goes, you know, uh, 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 <sighs> staying alive. And they all start singing it, you know, <laughs> great episode. Yeah. Music is powerful. I'm glad you brought up vibration because I feel like that's the, it's the key to so many things. And, you know, I've been liking playing with just simple tones, like notes and intervals because there's, there's a feeling that you can get between the different sounds and it actually makes you a better musician when you can know the different spacings between the notes and you just learn that. So that I went to a sight singing class and that's what we did. They numbered each note in relation to the root chord and okay. you would just, you know, you'd sing the intervals, you know, and you practice, you, you know, you just get accustomed to the space, the spacing of a third. What does that sound sure. like versus a fifth? What does that sound like? And you, bum, so if you can do that and you can sort of like get really comfortable with that, it just becomes, it becomes linguistic. It becomes, you know, fluent. And uh, it's also, I think, why humans tend to feel certain kinds of chords a certain way. Like everyone knows the stereotype is major happy, minor sad. Yeah. Right? Why is that? <laughs> like something about just the mathematical vibrational relation between those just feel a certain way. And it's yeah. universal. So we don't need to speak uh, 20 languages to convey a feeling. And it's so wonderful to be able to communicate with that. And then what happens, like you said, when you get a group of people together and they're aligning because you're you're sort of like, fi- you find it. And everybody in the room knows what it's like to kind of like create this thing together and to sort of come into harmony with one another. And right. it's such a transcendent experience. 
And I think that's why spirituality and music has always been linked and there's music in churches and temples. And there's something very, very transcendent about sound. Absolutely. You know, there um a lot of research, obviously, into the history of music, but, you know, there's debate whether there was singing and sound first or talking, right, as mm. a form of communication. And music is one of the things I love about it, among many things, is that it's very universal. So this is something that no matter what country you're from, no matter what language you speak, no matter your gender, ethnicity, none of that matters because it's a universal human natural component. And you know, I have people like, oh, I can't sing or I couldn't make music. And it's like, well, yeah, you can. You are even just by speaking because you're you're creating this vibration. Mm -hmm. But, you know, one of the things I thought of when you were talking about vibration, when I'm playing my guitar, you know, the guitar body is against kind of your stomach torso area. Right. And yeah. when I'm playing, I can feel the vibration. I even ask students to, to stop and kind of notice that when they're playing. I can feel mm. the vibration when I'm playing of, of the wood. And I can feel it the most when I'm playing, for example, string six, which is the very deep bass note, the, the deepest note. And you play that and you can feel the whole guitar vibrating. And it's just such a wonderful experience to stop and, mm. and just feel that, you know, it's almost like if you play the piano and you put your hand like on the, you know, on the body of the piano. Mm -hmm. And you can feel like when you play, especially those deeper bass notes, they really, you know, they really seem to resonate. It's so wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And people are even taking low frequency sounds and using those to promote healing. I uh, did an interview with a man who interviewed Brian Eno, and he said that Brian actually was in a car accident and then was in a hospital. And he said, this is a terrible place for healing. And so he wrote all this music that kind of helped to promote regenesis of cell growth and just, oh. it, or at least happy feelings that sure. we know when you feel good and when you have a good emotional state, it actually helps boost the immune system. And Absolutely. so, yeah, you can sit on a subwoofer playing 91 and a half hertz and just feel it in your body. And eventually your, your body will sort of entrain to that note and sort of harmonize itself around those tones. Absolutely. Um, and so I think that's really amazing. I mean, I've also had people play the sounding bowls, you know, the, the yes. um, Tibetan Sound bowls. bowls that, yeah. And there, it's just such an incredible experience. And oftentimes they'll play it, like they'll play it on your chest and just put it on your chest and over your heart and, you know, feel the tone of it. And you can feel it resonate through your entire body. And yeah. it's so relaxing. It's yeah. so great. Yeah. Yeah, I went to um, I do yoga and meditation and I went to a conference or a, actually a convention event and they had gong meditation. And, oh, gong baths are amazing. Right. Yeah. Well, they had the sound baths, too, with the and I love the crystal bowls. That's so soothing. But this gong experience. So we all and there were probably 100 people laying on yoga mats and uh -huh. in a, just a very relaxed position. And then they had at least 10 different size gongs on the stage and they had mm. the sound bowls and everything. It was so interesting. I could actually 
feel like the vibrations going through my body, pulsing through my body. And it was like, it's like this amazing reset. And so when I do that E string where I'll play it, it's to me, it's a reminder or it's reminds me of that feeling of the vibration just pulsing through the body. Yeah. Well, and I think that is same thing when you're writing music or playing music, that the goal would be to feel it. And the more you can get in tune with that feeling where you're just really feeling it, I think that's the experience that both listeners and players alike are really are looking for. You know, the more you, the more you can feel it, the more real it is, the more powerful it is. Uh, oh yeah. boy, yeah, gongs will knock you over. <laughs> you hit one of them, it can you just how how oh, you yeah, would sound. Yeah, no, I wasn't that close to them. <laughs> you got to play them mindfully because yeah, I was at Nam and they said, nah, okay, be careful." You know, I went to this booth. Actually, one of my favorite booths was Meinl Sonic Energy, and Meinl's oh. this percussion company out of Germany, and they have. Okay. They have gongs, but they also have these tuning forks. That oh, are, good um, old tuning tuned, forks. <laughs> but they're tuned to the planetary octave. So this oh. uh, this guy who did a bunch of research and wrote a book on it, like the different frequencies of, let's say this would be what the synodic moon cycle uh, oh. would be. And, uh, you know, in math, and then they turn that into a frequency and you can play it. And they're just so cool. I mean, and they, they do, they feel very, very different. Sun feels a lot different from moon or from uh mercury i mean who knows about the actual science of it all but they're just frequencies and the tones of these are so pure right that it's just really cool to just kind of like it's a meditation to just kind of focus on the sound of it you know like absolutely no know if you can hear that no not really they're very quiet you yeah. almost have to I almost have to like, Which is part of probably the meditative process or, you know, development of it that for you is that it's soft and you listen and you hear and feel it. Yes, yes, definitely. So, yeah, the vinyl booth was great. I've spent a lot of time there. It was cool. I'll have to go to that one. Um, you know, I went to I don't know if you've ever been to the Music Museum in Scottsdale, Arizona. It's a fantastic oh, museum. Oh, Mim. Yeah, yes. the, the yes. Museum of Making Music, I think. The well, there's one down in Music Carlsbad. Instrument Museum. There we go. Yeah, there's a Music That's Instrument it. Museum in Scottsdale. And yes. then, yeah, there is the one in Carlsbad that is the, the actually NAMS National right. Association of Music Merchants. They actually have a museum there, too. They're both wonderful. Yes, right. I so have. You've been I have to been that to one. Mim. Yes. So there's, I don't know if you saw this exhibit, but in uh, one area where they ha there were guitars, there was this video about the vibrations of the strings and what their vibrations are. I mean, it, it actually was a visual of what each string, uh, how it vibrates, what its frequency is at a standard tuning. It was so amazing and so interesting to, to look at guitar from not just the pretty sounds that I hear or that I'm playing a song that I love, which those are all great things, but sort of the science of it, kind of the nerd part of it that I enjoy. Well, it's beautiful <laughs> to watch when you can watch a camera that's gotten, you can kind of see the string do the pulsation visually yes. that you don't tend to see with a naked eye. 
Um, no. And you can see, you know, kind of almost perceive like the, the guitar strings that the waves actually move out in a 90 degree angle. So which is why even though they're vibrating up and down, they're sending the sound out and backwards into the sound hole and out to the listener. Sure. And um, yeah, and it's interesting. And the other cool thing is, is to, to notice like all the uh, the classical science of if you have a string between two nails and you pluck it and it has this tone. But then if you can put your finger in the middle, then what you get is an octave above it. You know, right. it's a it's a ratio. And if you put it a third of the way through, it's a different note. It's different ratio. And you can kind of start to see the mathematics of it. I used to get mad when teachers would say, well, music is just math. And I didn't like math. So I was like, ah, don't say that. Like music, because it was so this, this intuitive thing. I, I play everything by ear. So I would walk out of a movie theater and my mom would say that, that you know, I used to sing the entire score after I walked out of the movie. Wow. So like for me, there's a second nature thing about hearing music. And so like to, to make it cerebral for me was like kind of a, like a, it, I, I didn't like that. But now right. it's so cool looking into it because it, now I'm playing with the tones and things like that. I go, oh, Oh, that's why it, that's, that's why an octave why. is an octave. You yep. know, it's the same note, but just double the frequency. Yeah. Oh, wow. Like, it's amazing. Right. Well, and that's why when you put the capo on, you know, you're shortening the length of the vibration, which is why it changes the key. And the more vibrations per second, the faster the sound is, the higher the pitch. Right. Uh, you know, and then the lower the pitch, if it's a slower a cycle, uh, 40 hertz is very low you know, right. 40 cycles per second, but uh, 500 hertz is higher. It's closer to middle C. So I think it's a B, right? <laughs> Something like that. Right. And I, I think you're right, though. I mean, there are people when they're younger and learning that would find that really fascinating and interesting. But I think for the most part, that's something that you dive into or get more excited about as you know more about music. But it's just such an interesting human phenomenon that the vibration of these strings or whatever instrument you're playing. I mean, I play clarinet, so the vibration of the tone with the air through the reed that went down through the, you know, the instrument, it's like there's vibration in everything. And it's, it's just such a way. Well, in the clarinet, that's coming from your breath. Yes. So, you know, from a yogic perspective, I mean, that idea yep. of like finding your breath. And so if you're a wind player, you always need to know where your breath is. If you're a singer, you're literally the instrument. Sure. So Absolutely. I think that's something that was easy for me to forget as a young composer who had a synthesizer was that, you know, these instruments actually have to be mechanically played or that at some point the player has to breathe. So as I got into arrangements and I started hiring wind players and string players, it was fun to learn, oh, the instrument can't play that high. Oh, where is the singer going to take a breath? Like, Oh, and, yeah, absolutely. But it, But it also is what creates the character of the instruments as well because there's a humanity to it absolutely and i think that's the other thing that we really really like about music is this when it has soul so right it's so fascinating you know it is fascinating some other things that i learned on my research journey um, about how music works in the mind is that music that we've listened to from long ago, whether it's when we're kids or 
teenagers or young adults or whatever, those stay in our memory section of our brain. So even in the older years, if your mind starts to have, you know, dementia or Alzheimer's issues, they have found that if you play the music that someone knows is familiar with from earlier in their life, it comes right back to them. They start singing it, they'll start dancing to it. And, you know, so that memory center of the brain where music is stored is definitely so vibrant still. And that's why music therapy is so um, successful with people that either, you know, are having brain injuries or um, brain issues like um, Gabby Giffords, the Arizona congresswoman who was a gunshot victim and had a lot of brain damage. And they taught her to speak again by her singing songs that she knew. Like, I think when there's, you can look it up, there's videos, but like she couldn't talk, couldn't say a word. But when the therapist came in and started playing guitar and singing, let's say this little light of mine or this land is your land or whatever it was, she could sing. She could pronounce those words as a singing tool. And it's so fascinating how the mind can do so much and we can tap into other parts of the brain that we don't realize we can. Well, it just goes to show that music lives in a different part of the brain, like a different section of the brain. And also there are things about music that live in the right brain. And then there are other parts about music that live in the left brain. Yep. And so that was something that incidentally I learned in the sight scene class, very amazing teacher who said the reason people struggle with sight reading is because the actual reading the notes part on the staff, that's a very left brain part of your brain. And the singing part is a very right brain process. And the part of your brain that connects the two hemispheres is tiny. And yep. so it, sometimes it physically hurts to get these two things to communicate with each other. Yeah. And so, yeah, but I mean, that's really powerful to acknowledge that the music is tapping into a very different part of the brain. Yeah. Well, and even, you know, to your point about the left brain, right brain. So there's also been a lot of studies of both when you listen to music, how it affects your brain. And then when you make music. So if you're a musician, piano, guitar, clarinet, whatever instrument, violin, whatever you play. So the act of making music with an instrument actually is even better for you than listening to music. Listening to music wow. is good for your brain. But what the the extra component that's added in when you're making music is the physical component. So the right. physical components, if you're a wind instrument, including the breath, but also like on the clarinet, I'd have to finger notes on certain parts of the instrument, you know, guitar, you're playing chords, you're playing rhythm. There's, there's a lot of muscle memory to it, right? Muscle memory, but there's a lot of communication that has to happen between right and left brain. Same thing with piano, same thing, you know, and so you're looking at the music or let's say you're just creating the music, then you've got to physically send the signal to make your fingers hit the notes or make your fingers play the strings. And, and so those activities are actually helping the left and right brain and other parts of the brain to work together in, in harmony. And 
they've done, um, I think it's MRIs of people who are musicians and people who are not musicians. And so they would have non-musicians, they would scan their brain and then they would do the scans on a musician right as they're playing. Like they'd even, if they could bring their instrument in the unit, you know, the the scanning (laughs) unit. And you could see the whole brain was lighting up as they're playing. Wow. It's like a fireworks show. So very good for you know, your so brain. So making music is very good for your brain. Oh my gosh. Total tangent. Have you seen <laughs> the special about that guy who got struck by lightning and all of a sudden he could play piano like a virtuoso? I read about him, but no, I haven't seen it. It was incredible. It's like one of those weird mysteries of life where, you know, he couldn't, he never played an instrument before, but he got literally struck by lightning. And now he composes these beautiful piano records. He'll sit down at the piano and just like play like crazy. And And if uh, I remember the story, right, he had no musical training at all. None. Exactly. I don't know his name, but I'll put it in the show notes if I can find it. But yeah, no, it's, it's so fascinating. And it's such a mystery. I often wonder where inspiration comes from, like where do these creative ideas just it seem to come out of nowhere sometimes. And I don't know, like a bolt of lightning. Yeah, well, I know sometimes with songwriters, the idea comes to you and over time you develop it and maybe you collaborate with someone. And then at times it comes to you so strongly and so quickly you can't write or record it fast enough because it's just like pouring out of you. So I think inspirations and and things like for songwriters, it can obviously come from life experiences, but you know, it can come from something you see, like maybe you're inspired by someone crossing the street that has a crazy outfit on or so, you know, I mean, it could be a silly walk. Exactly. Maybe the cadence of their walk is just a little unique. And that inspires you to create a rhythm that, you know, exemplifies that. And so, yeah, it's kind of interesting to think about those inspirations. I mean, obviously there are inspirations from pain and sorrow and joy and happiness, and those are all good. But I know someone who wrote a song about his girlfriend who loves the beach and she likes these pink sunglasses that she wears all the time when she's at the beach. And so the song is called (laughs) Pink Sunglasses, but it's all about her love of the beach and sticking her toes in the sand. And, you know, you just don't know where it's going to come from. Do you write? I will say I have written a couple of songs, but I've not published them or anything. They're just private, fun songs that I just, I was inspired to write. One was called It's Never Too Late, and it's about trying new things at any age, because I have a lot of people that... Like learning guitar. Exactly, because I started as an adult, right? You know, I'm not I didn't start as a little kid. And I have adults that'll come to me. In fact, the oldest student I've ever taught was 82. And, um, you know, it's truly never too late to try new things. And so that's what that song's about. And the other was a song about a friend. And, you know, so it just... I wouldn't say I'm known for my songwriting. I'm definitely more known for teaching people how to play. I think that's the gift that God gave me, and I try to share that and inspire people. It's never too late to try something new.
it's never too late to try something new sometimes you sit and think i'd like to learn something new maybe language hula dancing and guitar too but then doubt creeps right in you say try new things no way i should have started way back when in my younger days but it's never too late to try something new it's never too late to try something new to try something new to try something new it's never You know, with songwriting, I've talked to a lot of people who are songwriters, so I can encourage people to try that avenue. You know, if I teach someone yeah, even just three chords and they're like, I have this idea, I'm like, good, write it down. We'll put some chords to it. You know, I mean, good, yeah, do it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my mom wrote some songs when she was young and she used to sing them to me when I was a kid. It was oh, so cool. I, I often credit that. my mom's hobby of music with my vocation of music. She's very musical and didn't pursue it as a career, but loves guitar, likes singing, writing. We always used to harmonize to CDs and tapes oh, in the car. Oh, I love it. And yeah. Oh, you had your own carpool karaoke. <laughs> yes, yes. But yeah, I mean, it was very formative for me. I mean, she had this song about the cat meowing at the back door saying it's time to eat, you know? <laughs> I just love that. I mean, I one of these days I want to do a children's album because I have two kids and we've written some stuff, my wife and I, just for fun. And, and it's kind of become a mainstay. And I think that would be a really fun. I, I think children's music, if done well, can be so incredible. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I when I first was playing, I think it was the first couple of years and my kids like when I first started to play, my youngest was four and I would play a lot of kids' music because the only time I could find to practice was bath time. <laughs> I called it total request bathtub. <laughs> so I'd get them in the bath. They'd, they'd do their bath. I'd, I'd shampoo their hair or whatever. And then while they're splashing around in the tub, I brought my chair in and my guitar and my music and I whatever I was working on. And my teacher, oh wow, um, she was older. She taught us like singer-songwriter stuff, but she also taught us like kids' music because she had grandchildren and whatever. And so I would play those songs and I would play whatever I was working on, but um, I would play a lot of kids' songs for my kids because they really enjoyed it and they'd sing along but it was funny because with them and and in that story I love to tell whatever my teacher was giving us like one time I was working on Big Yellow Taxi originally by Joni Mitchell mm -hmm. Counting Crows did it later um but anyway I was working on that song you know it goes ooh bop 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 and so my daughter would always request that song she would say mom do that one where we go ooh bop 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 and she'd be really belting out the ooh bop 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 <laughs> says I'm playing it my son had his favorite song and you know it it just really um you know 
playing for kids is so enjoyable. In fact, that instructor that I that I took lessons with, she said your best audience are young children. Well, I had my two youngest were four and six at the time. And then my other two were a little bit older. And so I had a built in audience if that was to hold true. But then I took it to the next level. And I talked to their teachers and asked if I could come in the class and play because I'm like, my guitar oh, teacher that's said, a great idea. and I was also an elementary teacher. And so you I would made use those it. kids day, right? Yeah. Those kids are like, Oh, guitar time. Like, just a little faces. Oh, light here up, she you know? is with that guitar. You walk in with a guitar and your cool factor like goes through the roof <laughs> just immediately. It's, it's so great. And the funny thing was I could hardly play a couple of chords maybe and some simple <laughs> strumming and I'd use it like, um, if I was struggling to change from say G to C and it was a song I was playing that I really wanted to play for them, I'd be like, now what I'm going to do today is I'm going to slow everything down because I really (laughs) want you to see how you move from one sound to another. And so, and then I'd slow it down so I could play it. It was great. That's fantastic. A couple years into it, because my kids were younger, I did record several children's songs and Yeah, that was really fun. And there's a lot of great music for kids and kids are so open minded and they're like a sponge, you know, you can really share. Well, I used to I was an elementary teacher at the time as well. And so I would bring it into my classroom. What did you teach? Uh, Mostly third and fourth. So elementary. Okay. Yeah. I loved the kindergartners too, but I tended to veer towards third and fourth grade. But I would use, I'd bring my guitar in and if there was like a math concept about, I don't know, dividing or let's say, for example, or multiplication, I would get my guitar out and we'd make up a song about it to help them learn whatever concept I was working on. Well, and again, you're accessing that other part of the brain so that you have that memory. It's a really great way to reinforce memory. Absolutely. Well, you know, they say if you ask a kid to say their ABCs, they generally will sing it because that's how they learned it with that ABC song. Right. I know. Yeah. Well, here's the funny thing. So in kindergarten, my kids had to know their address. That was something they had to learn. And so I taught it to them to the tune of row, row, row your boat. And they never had a problem. They could recite our address. (laughs) Drop of a hat. In fact, the teacher's like, that's so great. I'm going to do that. Well, okay, fast forward, my youngest is in college and we're all sitting around with parents weekend and we're sitting around with her roommates at her house and one of them starts singing their address to row, row, row your boat. And I said, wait a minute, did you do that too? They go, no, Kaylin taught us that that's how you learn. (laughs) My daughter taught them that that's an easy way to remember your address. (laughs) That's great. Well, so teaching is in your DNA. You've been doing this forever. And is there kind of a translation between teaching, reading, writing, arithmetic and teaching music to guitar students? Or are there different challenges? Is there kind of more structure to the classroom environment? Like what, how does that knowledge base help you? And, you know, how is it different? Well, you know, I think definitely my experience with teaching in the elementary realm of the world. Well, and even in my student teaching, I was, you know, I'd go and sub in high schools and middle schools. So I I had some experience there as well. But I think the concepts are the same, you know, having a plan of how you're going to teach, but also 
having a way to creatively engage your students. I think those are all really important, no matter what you're teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I think it's also very important whether I'm teaching multiplication in an elementary school or a guitar chord to a student that I understand how they learn. And that's definitely more challenging in a group setting because you have people learning at different levels and in different ways. So it's certainly challenging. Like in my workshops, I see that a lot. And I'm grateful that I've had that teaching experience because I know that that's what's happening. And so I'll teach something and I'll say, you can try it this way. You Mm -hmm. might want to try it this way. Or if you think a little differently, you might want to try this. And so I try and give them some different ways, different directions to come at the same idea. And I know that has definitely been something that I learned and did as an elementary teacher, you know, because you want to try, you have to teach to the group, but you want to make it you want to make it personal so that the person has a chance to grasp whatever it is you're teaching. Right. And then you go do it on TV where <laughs> the classmates aren't even there. Right. How did you like, first of all, I want to ask you about that because I kind of want to know how did you end up on PBS? But first of all, like, how do you tailor that lesson to a classroom of the world? Right. Well, again, it comes from the experience of teaching that, I mean, when I taught it on PBS, it wasn't my first time at the rodeo, right? I had already been teaching this workshop a lot. And so understanding and working out the typical kinks that people go through who have never learned guitar or know nothing about music, you know, for example, on the A chord, I would have a lot of people, men in particular, where their fingers were a little bit bigger and it was harder to squeeze all their fingers into the same fret. And so I would offer an alternate way to finger that same chord right in the same realm. And so I would offer, you know, I'd I'd say, this is how I teach it. Um, You may see people doing it this way. You can certainly do it this way if you're struggling with the chord or, um, Typically, when people move over to the E chord, their first finger wants to drop down too low. And I'll, you know, and so in when I was teaching it then as a show that I was filming, I would say, you know, sometimes people, I, you know, I know people have had the experience where their finger drops down. So on that E chord, I want you to look at your first finger and just double check. Are you on that string? So almost what I'm doing is trying to go after the objections or the difficulties that someone might encounter, at least the typical ones that I know of. Mm-hmm. So that's that's really how I structured it when I was teaching it. But my guitar is not turned on. <laughs> <laughs> you never have to deal with that question with a guitar. That's what I love about acoustic instruments. It's like either making noise, you're either touching it or you're not. Like, right. Well, and I talk about how to tune the guitar because, you know, I mean... Let's face it, if you're, even if you're Eric Clapton, if you're not tuned, it's not going to sound great, right? So right. teaching a TV audience to tune, you know, that's a challenge, right? Like, how do you really do that? And so what I did was both visual and also with sound, but description, you know, if, if you play it right. and you see it and you're using a tuner and this is the reading you're getting, 
or you're trying to match that sound and it's not quite there, then you're going to have to do this. And so, um, and I try to come up with troubleshooting sort of situations. In other words, if you've turned your tuning key and the sound has gone lower instead of higher, then you turned it the wrong way. So now you need to reverse that. So sort of giving troubleshooting as I'm teaching it is what I did for the TV audience. You know, typical things that they might run into. Yeah. So how did you end up on PBS in the first place? How did that (laughs) opportunity come about? That's a great thing. You know, it's a fun story. I had been doing my workshops for a while and I really, I started out, well, in fact, my first workshop, I had three people come to it. So that was my research and development. But then (laughs) I really expanded it and started teaching it at colleges and universities as part of their extended learning or their, um, you know, continuing ed. And, you know, that was going really well. Well, in the meantime, I had seen a program on PBS about a piano guy and learning to play piano quickly. And I thought, well, gosh, if they do that for piano, maybe they'd want to do that for guitar because that's kind of what I'm teaching, you know, is this learning to play guitar quickly, right? And so um, I decided, you know, I get these ideas. In fact, my kids would always say, oh no, she's got another idea. Um, so I got this idea and I thought, <laughs> well, maybe they'll, they'll do that for guitar. So I arranged, I mean, it's a long story, but I, I arranged to film my full five hour workshop as a DVD. And I thought, well, okay, so I've got it filmed. What about I'll turn it into like a product, a DVD product. And then, um, maybe PBS will, will want to show it and show some of it as part of their like fundraising. Wow. You know, like if you like the doo-wop singers, you get the video or the yeah. CD or whatever. And so I just, I started to solicit uh, local and, and farther away PBS stations and the station in San Diego, I'm in Southern California and the station in San Diego, the uh, vice president, finally responded to my uh, emails and I was very persistent. That's one thing my business coach said that, you know, the one thing you really have going for you is persistence. (laughs) So (laughs) I just kept saying, hey, just want to follow up. Hey, don't forget. Hey, do you want to try this? And and I did for all the PBS stations, but that one seemed to respond the most favorably. And so they decided they wanted to give it a try and kind of went from there. So it launched in 2012 and has been on different stations all over the country. And it's part of their fundraising effort. So they have my DVDs available as a donation thank you gift. Wow. Well, so a couple of things to kind of go into the success of that. Number one, you are very consistent. I noticed with your episode on your podcast, uh, there is never a weekend that goes by where I do not get an email from Marlene that has the latest recording of the podcast (laughs) to be posted on time on every Thursday. And so definitely you have that. The second thing is that you mentioned that you have a business coach. Yes. And that's cool. That's a really important side note because 
I think I believe that coaching is a very important ingredient that you can add to your arsenal to be successful is to get input on what you're doing in not just your music, but also your business. Oh, absolutely. You know, I have, um, I, when I first decided to turn this into a business, I went to an organization called SCORE, S-C-O-R-E. And they're, um, it's like, they're all, it's all over the country, but they're like retired presidents of companies and CEOs and wow. uh, stuff like that. And they volunteer their time and help mentor and coach people who are starting businesses. And so I ended up with um, a gentleman who was a retired um, president of a very large advertising agency. And I, and in his, I saw one of his, uh, classes he was teaching and he talked about how he plays guitar. And I thought, now that's someone I should work with because he understands guitar and yeah. he understands marketing and things like that. And so I started working with him one-on-one and he just was such a wonderful mentor and coach. And I would, you know, along those lines, I would say you're very much like that too. You're a, an amazing mentor and coach where sound and podcasting is concerned because, you know, again, for all you out there listening, I knew absolutely nothing. And Steve has the patience of a saint in teaching and, and sharing his knowledge and experience. And, you know, you never made me feel like, Oh, you're an idiot. How could you not know that? You just patiently explain that this is how you do this or that's how you do that. And, you know, I think we're not intended to go through this journey of life by ourselves. And so having someone who has knows more than you, I mean, if you think about it, everyone you meet knows something you don't know. And so that's you right. Know, if you um, even your children. Oh, without a doubt. I learn a lot from my kids and they're all adults yeah. now. And boy, I learn even more. But anyway, um, <laughs> you so patiently have taught me all the nuances and things I need to do. And and I think those kind of people in your lives, business coaches, coaches for whatever it is. Well, if you need someone to teach you guitar, you know, songwriting, exactly. Guitar. Yeah. Right. Whatever you need. um, Mixing. Right. Why not experience it through someone who knows it really well? Hi, everyone. This is Justin of the Oceanographers, and I just want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of Language of Creativity. I also wanted to let you know that Stephen Lovett, the host of Language of Creativity, also does amazing work as an advisor or coach. If you're looking for advice in the music industry, starting a podcast, anything related to sound, he does this through his other company, I Create Sound. For me personally, I couldn't have gotten my first album done at all without his help. Like, seriously, I don't think the Oceanographer's album would have been completed. I was knee deep in mix reviews and going back and forth with my mixer and I really didn't know where I was headed, but Steven really helped me keep on track and helped me get the quality that I really wanted out of my music. If you're looking for someone that has a really great ear and will put you in the right direction, please check him out at iCreateSound.com and fill out a contact form so that he can get in contact with you and you guys can be on your way to musical bliss. All right, thanks. 
Well, so there was another thing that was really important about your story is that you had this inspiration. It's like a lightning struck you and you're like, you know, I should get on PBS <laughs> and I think I'm just going to try that. And you you just had this inspiration. And you trusted it. You went with it. And yeah. You didn't let the voices say, oh, gosh, not again. But you also you had this inspiration, but you knew the inspiration wasn't going to happen by itself. So oh, yeah. like, you, you, try, you get the you get these ideas. And it's really, I think, important as creatives to trust those ideas that we get to trust those inspirations. Sure. And then it's almost like, you, OK, so you can feel it in your bones, just like, you know, when you're singing, you, you, you know, this is that, you know, this is the feeling. And then you you go, okay, so like, that's, that's a thing. We're going to do that. But then you had to almost like kind of reverse engineer. Okay. How do we do that? How do I make that happen? And, um, did, did your business coach, like, did you bring that to your business coach at the time? Or did you have a business coach at your time? Did you say like, Hey, how do I, how, how do I even do this? Or is it kind of a thing where you, I mean, walk me through your process of, of this inspiration and like how you actually came up with approaching the stations for, for very particularly for their fund drives. Right. Well, again, I modeled it after, you know, what I had seen that they were doing already. And they were doing one for piano and they, I think they had one for yoga and they had all these different kinds of things. And it's like, well, why wouldn't people want to learn guitar? You know, I mean, it just... Yeah. That that was all I could think of was, well, why not guitar? I mean, there was no reason why people couldn't try guitar. And so, um, it, you know, maybe it was just being naive, but it was it was the idea I had. And I thought, OK, well, how do I do it? And and you're right. There are um, it doesn't just happen. It didn't just happen. I didn't just like you know, the first person I contacted said, oh, good, Marlene's ready to go. You know, this is awesome. No way. <laughs> you know, I... As a matter gosh, of fact, we were looking for... We were just in a meeting yeah, this we morning and we were talking about if guitar. if Marlene would contact lessons. us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, Although that has happened to me. Well, not to me. Uh, not really enough. I mean, I have this, <laughs> I have this uh, little sign on my desk and it's a, an image of an iceberg and, you know, you see the top of the iceberg and that's your success. That's the PBS show or, you know, NPR. And, but below it, which is the majority of that iceberg, it, it's a huge, it's probably seven eighths of the iceberg represents yeah. the, the struggles, the filming, the, the cost, the sleepless nights, the, you know, emails not being returned or whatever it is, everything that yeah. you struggle through to get there. And, you know, it, uh, filming it, I had never filmed. I mean, I had been teaching my workshop live, but I had never filmed anything. And so I filmed mm -hmm. the whole workshop first before I presented it to PBS. And I was um, going to say, yeah, it's not like PBS like shot it for you. You actually no. went and you filmed this knowing that this was your goal, right. hoping that this would happen. But you actually had to put up money yep. and get a crew and be yep. the producer for the first. I mean, how, how like, yeah, tell me more about that. Well, it's um, it's interesting because I. I just I mentioned it to a few people and people started giving me referrals of people they knew who did those kinds of productions. And so I started getting estimates and like, oh, my gosh, you know, this is going to cost a lot of money. And 
um, is, yeah. is it, you know, what's the risk and reward, right? I mean, you do have to look at that. And, um, you know, I, my other thought You didn't get process, your brother to bring his handy cam over and, you know... Well, it actually, like, it was kind of along those lines. <laughs> I was at a family reunion that summer before I filmed it in November. And I was mentioning to one of my cousins, I have uh, 18 first cousins. And I was mentioning to one of my <laughs> wow. cousins that I was doing this and blah, blah, blah. And she said, well, you need to talk to my husband. And I said, oh, well, what does your husband do? And she said, "He's uh, he teaches film production at a university. And I said, oh. Oh, okay. So I talked to him and, and he said, well, I could do that. You, you could come and we could do it. I could also use it as a teaching opportunity and things like that. And I mean, I, I had, to, I still had to pay like for studio time and editing and, you know, all of that. It wasn't yeah. like I got like a hugely discounted thing. I mean, it was discounted, but um, I also got to work with someone who totally understood my vision, who I totally trusted a hundred million yeah. percent. And, and so for right. me, that was great because then I could relax and really just do what I do, which is teach guitar. So I wasn't, I mean, he yeah. even had like a makeup and hair person, which I never had anyone. I mean, I've, I've had makeup done on me, but like, ooh, makeup and hair at a studio, you know? And it's a necessity. Filming. You can't not have it if oh, you're yeah, going to do because, something in that level. Well, and I didn't think about it. I thought, well, I just put a little mascara on, some blush and lip gloss. But no, there's the HD lights. I didn't know. You know, the HD lights film differently on camera than, um, yeah. you know, and and the makeup has to be something that the HD lights will look right with. And so it really, again, I talk about learning journeys. I've been on some really interesting journeys, but anyway, so filmed that it had to be edited. Here's the funny part about it. Um, so when I got back the, the initial, the rough cut of it, I said, um, about, I think I actually counted them and in a five hour video, <laughs> I said it 145 times. It was uh, so uh, obnoxious. Uh, and in fact, I thought about when I was in college, <laughs> I had taken a class, a speech class and, and this was old school, but the teacher played a, a, a film about speech and this man was giving a speech and he every time he said um these two big red letters U M would appear on the screen so he'd be talking <laughs> blah 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 um blah 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 um and that's all i could see in my head as i'm listening to my own video oh no so god bless my editor i i went to him practically in tears and said i i'm umming way too much and we can't reshoot this whole thing what what can we do so we did figure out ways to at least alleviate some of them. There were areas we could kind of cut and, you know, and so it's not quite uh, as bad, but boy, lesson learned. You know, when I say, started podcasting, um. <laughs> that's what I noticed too. I say like, um, you know, a lot. Absolutely. Like, and, um, you know, and yeah. it would happen so many times. And it was while I was trying to formulate a thought, but I wasn't done. And I almost thought about going to a hypnotherapist to get like <laughs> that trained out of me. But it's honestly just the practice of it and having edited myself so many times and, you yes. know, how time consuming it is to go take all that out and realizing that, uh, oh, OK, um, 
you know, there's certain certain ones that are conversational are okay, but if it's every other word, it's a problem. And right. that fine line between what is normal speech and where is it that you're actually you're on a stage and there is a stagecraft to it. Um, and you certainly are well-spoken. I noticed that you are very impeccable with your own recordings and your own editing and you catch things that I would be like, Oh, okay. You know, you're, you're a perfectionist. Like I am, you're very, you know, and I think that's, yeah, I don't know. I think that makes you, it's, it is, but at the same time, everything you do is excellent. And I think that's something you and I have in common, like that, drive to put out something that's high quality that is a benefit to the people listening to it you know exactly and- uh, ultimately my my goal was to produce a video where people could learn guitar where i wasn't standing in front of them physically so i mean yeah. i also filmed it with the intention it was twofold one was to present it to pbs but the other was to have a physical product a video that people could purchase, you know, for example, like if they went to my workshop and wanted to take me home with them, right. And review, wait, how did she said you should do this? Wait, how do I, you know, and kind of as a reference tool. And so that was my other motivation in filming this. So it kind of had, you know, that two prong effect, but, um, (laughs) <laughs> well, also, <laughs> you know that you can't just slap something together like, yeah. oh, here's here's an iPhone or a handy cam and I'm just going to stick it on a tripod and record myself doing a workshop. And then I'm going to go to PBS and say, hey, sell my, you know, video. That's right. not going to work. Well, you know, there's a I, I think as a general rule, no. But yeah, because their vetting standards, I mean, their standards are very high and um, which is why it's such an honor to be included in their programming. But I knew that I couldn't just throw something together and and present that. You know, I knew I needed I needed to do the very best that I possibly could before I shared it with them. And so, uh, yeah. So then I I got the information of, of various people at PBS to send this to, and just blindly sent it to everyone I could figure out to send to, and just. You know, just kept hoping something would pop and I would follow up with those people. And and as I mentioned, uh, finally, one of them did respond with interest. And it happened pretty fast once that producer uh, wanted to get going on it. And uh, she's got this yeah. producer has a lot of um, credibility and um uh, favorability within the whole realm of PBS. So usually whatever she, I I discovered later, usually whatever she discovers or presents goes well within the whole PBS as a whole. But um, she invited me to come down and do a live interview while they're airing it. So what they would do is air like 20 minutes of it. And then there was 10 minutes where it included an interview and and oh, donate to PBS and things like that. Well, I had never done a live interview. So that was kind of an interesting journey too. But she was so brilliant. She said to me as some of the best advice, she said, Marlene, just remember you're having a conversation with someone. So I'm just talking with a friend. And that's what I did. She goes, don't even look at the cameras. Just talk to me. Just tell me 
you know, I'll ask you something, just tell me about it. And it was like, that was the most soothing thing that someone could tell me to do who, you know, I had never done anything like that before. So um, I'm sure if I look back on it, I probably still look like a deer in headlights, but um, (laughs) it worked. (laughs) And other stations, other PBS stations liked it and picked it up. And that's how it grew from there. So um, totally amazing. Well, and also journey. you're the only person who's still thinking about that. Oh, <laughs> oh gosh. I did an interview one time. Uh, I was going to be teaching at one of the universities in, in Denver. And, um, I used to, to promote it, I would contact all the, um, radio and television news programs and say, Hey, this is going on. Cause sometimes they're looking for news stories. Right. And that's one of the things I learned in right. the coaching process. And so, um, so I contacted him and one of them said, yeah, we'd love to interview you and it'll be at seven in the morning or something. So I had to be at the studio at like five 30 <sighs> flown in the night before, and I was going to be teaching at 10. So I, I had to be ready to go like go to the studio, film this, and then go right to my workshop. So I did, and this was before I really understood the differences in makeup. So you can probably tell where I'm going with this. So I I get to the studio, it's 5.30 in the morning. I'm thinking they're going to do my hair and makeup. And no, I was just going to do my own makeup. And they're like, oh, no, you just do your own makeup. And I'm like, I don't don't know what to do. And so... um, (laughs) So I did, and I went on, and uh, ironically, it's one of the more popular news interviews I've I've done, or at least to that point I had done. I, I mean, the the hits and the generation of people coming to the workshop and business was was good. I, I kind of feel like maybe they felt sorry for me because I didn't see the show until uh. after the workshop was over. So it was like three or four in the afternoon. And I stopped by one of my cousin's houses to see it because she had recorded it. I was bawling. I was screaming. I was like, no. Oh my, because I just, my makeup wasn't right. My hair wasn't right. You know, I just was (laughs) like, oh, I look terrible. And we're our own worst critic, right? And um, yeah, but the irony of it, again, they may have felt sorry for me. Oh, that that poor woman. Let's help. Well, her. and it just goes to show you miss a hundred percent of the shots you never take, and we're busy beating ourselves up or canceling ourselves based on you know one little thing that we don't like and that's you know so self conscious for us. But there's a bunch of people that just want to learn guitar, and you have what they need. You right? Know? And they you weren't got focused on their on channel. My makeup or hair? They were focused on the content of what I was talking about. So you brought them something where they were where they were watching that was something that they didn't know they needed. And then they bought it. They came to class. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it's funny, the experiences you have, but interestingly, the, the uh, makeup artist who had done my makeup for that very first PBS interview, I called her, actually, I called her from the car after I left my cousin's house. And I said, (laughs) I need you to show me how to do makeup. Because I thought I don't ever want to get caught in that situation again, where I didn't know what what to yeah. do. And so when I got yeah. home from Colorado, we set an appointment, and she came and and explained. You know, there's HD makeup is very different than um, regular makeup. You know, so and she showed me what yeah. to do, and so now I'm very prepared. But I haven't had to use my own skills for makeup 
since then. But you know, lesson <laughs> well, learned. Well, these are the things you you collect in your tool bag as you go along, Absolutely. and that's what's interesting about having been at this for a while, as I have. You know, you you learn all these little tricks, and yeah. the more different arenas you dabble in, or you play in, or you've had experience in, then those come with you. Um, yes. So you've had some experience, obviously, doing television so that made your podcast a bit easier in a way i believe it probably did because i am comfortable now speaking into a microphone or i feel comfortable speaking into a microphone and sharing my knowledge and what i hope is a way that seems very doable to people that are listening so that's that's kind of my hope but i feel like, yeah, all those stumbles that I had before helped me to do what I'm doing now. Maybe a little bit better. Now, your show, <laughs> your podcast, Tips for Guitar Playing Success, debuted just over a year ago. And I think it was this spring hit 10,000 downloads. I, yeah, I was congratulations. So surprised. Yeah, thank you. I'm actually almost up to 15,000, which is um, wow. amazing. Yeah, you know, I I think back, I launched it April 9th, 2020. And, and there's a bit of irony in that. I was thinking of doing that podcast at the end of 2019. But interestingly, when COVID hit, people were turning to podcasts. And that's when it was launched. And yeah. I didn't launch it because of COVID, but it turned out to be a time that people were really zoning in and looking for different things, I think. Uh, but yeah, you know, that, that first month after I launched it, I think I had, oh, I don't know, maybe, I don't even think I had 300. Maybe I had 300 um, listeners but or mm -hmm. downloads, but yeah, it was about a week or two before that one year anniversary that I hit that 10,000 mark. And I thought, wow, this is really happening. Oh, my gosh. Here was this idea that I had, didn't know what to do, how to do it. And and it grew into the, you know, um, more successful than I thought it would do right right away or at all. So you just don't know, you know, I was talking to someone, a, a songwriter, and she was telling me, you know, some of my ideas, whether it's songwriting or instrumental stuff or whatever she's done, she goes, some of my ideas have worked and some of them haven't. And you just learn from the ones that work and you learn from the ones that don't work. And so, yeah, I didn't know if the PBS thing yeah. would work. I didn't know if the podcast would work. And you know, they'll work or they don't work. And you just, you have to do the very best that you can. You have to put everything you can into it if you believe in your idea. And then just, you have to see where it goes. Absolutely. So where can people find your podcast, your books, or if you have any online materials, how do people connect with you? Marlene Hutchinson, guitar teacher. <laughs> well, thank you for asking. Um, I have a website, which is marlenesmusic.com. And on my website, you can find just about everything. Um, my podcast, my books, my DVDs. Um, I also have content on other sites like Listenable. So you can certainly hear my 
instructions on there as well. But uh, I'm on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and let's see, LinkedIn, just about everything you could think of that most people are on. And my podcast is called Tips for Guitar Playing Success. And it's for anyone who just wants to continue on their journey or learn how to keep going on their journey or wants to learn new things or whatever you need. And you can find that on just about every podcast source you can think of. So Apple, Amazon, um, iTunes, Spotify, Spotify, Pandora. And luckily, I'm so blessed to be on that. And my podcast has been listed on a couple of really nice lists, like top 25 guitar podcasts. And so um, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. And Player FM, which is another podcast resource. Uh, but what I'm the most happy about and excited about is that this idea that I thought would help people has really been helping people. And, yeah. and I know that because people are listening and they're returning. And there is such a wonderful sense of gratification that, you know, you can share your gift with people and and it's possible. And thanks to yes. you. I mean, Steve is like the guru, the, I don't know, the genius of sound and podcasting. I, I can't even sing your praises enough. You're so amazing. So anyone out there looking to do Thank a you. podcast or have sound production and editing done, this guy is the man. Thank you. I do artist advisement coaching for artists, and we can cover a lot of topics. I really like helping you get your sound. And I have helped artists with career questions as well in terms of like direction and material and ideas, listening to mixed reviews. How does it sound? Or I'm kind of stuck here. Can you help? So it's not just technical. And so I really enjoy the aspect of connecting with where it is that you're trying to go and seeing if I can add some ideas or direction toward what you're trying to accomplish and really see if we can help you grow toward that. Oh, yeah. uh, Thank you for the plug. Oh, you're welcome. No, again, I can't sing your praises enough, but even things like reeling in my ideas or if I have done a podcast episode and I've sent it to you and what I love is you're not afraid to come back and say, hey, you might want to try this or this one didn't sound kind of like that one where, like, for instance, maybe my energy level was different or something like that. And I really like that candid, honest way of helping someone develop. I think that really has helped me tremendously. And so I really thank you for that. And Mm. you're amazing. I appreciate that a lot. Marlene, thanks for being here. This was a pleasure. I'm so glad we finally got to do this. And thanks for joining us on the Language of Creativity podcast. And as Marlene likes to say, (laughs) play on. Play on. (laughs) Hey, everyone. This is Josh from the Language of Creativity podcast with your host, Stephen Lovett. As always, you can find everything we talked about in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show and want to hear more from the Language of Creativity, Check out Scott Thrift's episode to see how he went from being a successful filmmaker to making one-of-a-kind clocks that redefine the way we see time. Thanks again for supporting the show. And don't forget to subscribe so you can be updated about any future
releases. And this is the Language of Creativity Podcast.